Welcome to the podcast for Christmas Eve 2015. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The AAA Auto Group uh, projects the number of year-end holiday travelers will surpass the 100 million mark for the first time on record this year. That means nearly one in every, uh, out of every three Americans will be taking a holiday trip this season. And the season is composed of December 23rd through January 3rd. With 100.5 million people expected to travel 50 or more miles away from home. This marks the seventh consecutive year that uh, holiday travel growth has risen. And over 90% of those 100 plus million people will reach their destination by driving. My family and I moved to the Antelope Valley uh, from Hawaii this past July. And as you can imagine, being a pastor severely restricts your travel options at Christmas time. Uh, In the past, when we've traveled for the holidays, we've left early on Christmas morning, uh, having fulfilled our pastoral duties at the Christmas Eve services the night before. Occasionally, we would fly to the East Coast to be with my family in West Virginia. But most of the time, we went from our island on Oahu to the big island where Jody's family was uh, for Christmas. Traveling on Christmas Day isn't actually that bad, uh, even with an early flight. We were a mere 12 minutes away from Honolulu International Airport at the house we lived in Iaea. And we usually would get up, if we were traveling on Christmas Day, extra early, uh, get the kids up, we'd open presents, and then we'd head out to the airport. We would either grab breakfast at the airport at Starbucks or wait until we get to Grandma's house. It was only a 45-minute flight from Honolulu to Hilo. And then we would have breakfast, and then we would open presents at Grandma and Grandpa's house. Well, this one time, when our kids were still in elementary school, things did not work out the way we had planned. Jody and I came home after the last service. We had an 11 o'clock service as well in IAM. And we got back home, and then we had to do all the things that you have to do to get ready for Christmas morning. And it seems the younger the children are in the family, the longer it takes you to get everything ready for Christmas morning. Well, we went to bed so late that we forgot to set our alarms or our phones. So instead of getting up early and leisurely opening our Christmas gifts together as a family like we had planned, we are awakened by one of our church members knocking on our door. That was our ride. He had already agreed to come and get us at, what, I don't know what it was, 6 o'clock or 6.15, something like that, so we could get to the airport in time to catch our flight. Well, you had never seen a family move quicker. Well, I guess if you watched Home Alone, that was about what we were moving on that morning. We were scrambling to get up, to get dressed. Luckily, we had packed the night before, so we had to get our luggage out to the curb. There's no time to open presents, so we sent our, our oldest child, Ezra, into the living room. I gave him a duffel bag. Stuff as many presents as you can into the bag. We'll open them when we get to Grandma's house. Whatever else we don't get, we'll come back and open them on, like, January 3rd or whatever day it was that we were traveling back. So we barely made it. We got... Everything into the van, we got to the airport, we made it through security, and we got on the flight, got to Grandma and Grandpa's house, and sat down to open the presents. Such a touching moment, right? Gathered around the tree, Grandma and Grandpa had a few presents and passed them out, and then Ezra delivered the ones from the duffel bag. And here's one for Emily, and one for Mom, and one for Dad, 
and one for Ezra, and one for Ezra. The rest of the bag was all presents for Ezra. Hey, he did what we asked him to, right? Pack it. We didn't say, make sure there's an equal distribution among them. That's okay. We had Christmas on January 3rd that year. Ezra had it on Christmas Day. It's, it's, it's fine. Well, this year we're blessed to have our kids home uh, from college. Ezra's a senior now at Judson University in Elgin, Illinois. Emily's a freshman at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. And we're not planning on going anywhere this Christmas. That's not true. We're going to go to Disneyland next week and do that thing. But other than that, we're not traveling anywhere. Um, And if truth be told, I don't think Mary and Joseph planned on traveling that very first Christmas either, as we'll see in just a moment. Over the last month, we've been looking at Christmas through Mary's eyes. We're examining what Christmas might have meant from the perspective of Jesus' mother, Mary. But we've been walking with Mary through various stages of her life. From the time she first found out she was going to be with child, to a visit uh, in, the, in the temple when Jesus was a few days old, to when Jesus was 12 years old and they went back to Jerusalem, all the way to the cross in which Jesus was crucified, even to what the last few moments of Mary's life on earth might have been like. Each phase of Mary's life brought a different depth of understanding to what that Christmas may have meant to her, what the birth of her son may have meant. And tonight we cover the most famous moment of all, the actual birth of Jesus. United Methodist pastor Adam Hamilton from Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City has written a wonderful book called The Journey, Walking the Road to Bethlehem. And much of what I share with you tonight came from what I learned from his book. As we learned earlier, Mary was probably 12, maybe 13, at the most 14 years old when she was engaged to marry Joseph and when she discovered she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. They were both living in the town of Nazareth at the time in the north part of Israel known as Galilee. That's where our reading that Dave read for us tonight starts. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and the family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. Now, Mary was nine months pregnant when the Roman soldiers arrived at their small town in Nazareth to announce that the emperor had commanded a census and that every Jewish family must return to the husband's hometown to be counted. It was all about taxes. Emperor Augustus was eager to get more coin in his coffers, and so the Jewish uh, family, the Romans, required all the Jewish families to return to the location of their property. Joseph's property would have been uh, his portion of his father's estate, and possibly the carpentry business that he and his father uh, worked together as he was growing up in a little town called Bethlehem. Mary being engaged to Joseph, which back then was practically the same thing as already being married, was bound to make the trek with Joseph. And since the Romans held all of the power in the Middle East back then, Mary and Joseph could not refuse, even if she was nine months pregnant, for fear of repercussions from the Romans. I'm guessing if Mary had anything to say about it, she would not have wanted to make that trek so late in her pregnancy. Now, there were two possible routes 
that Joseph and Mary could have taken from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The first option would have been this route in red, uh, the Jordan route. It would have taken them east, crossing the Jordan River, then 60 miles south, finally recrossing the Jordan near Jericho and traveling west to Bethlehem. It would have been about a uh, 12 to 13 day trip, and it would have been followed by those uh, who didn't want to go through Samaria. Um, Many uh, Jews and Samaritans did not get along well, and the Jewish uh, community would go out of their way to avoid Samaria, if at all possible. The second option was a more direct route. Uh, It cut two days off of the travel time. And it took them nearly due south from Nazareth through the Jezreel Valley and along the road known as the Way of the Patriarchs. This route was easier uh, during the first half of the journey. The second half, though, included uh, many hills and mountains along with some well-known places to stop so they could get water. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, noted that during Passover, when, when everybody was traveling from all over Israel to get to Jerusalem and the roadways were so crowded, it was not uncommon for some Jews to use this direct route, this second route, the way of the patriarchs. Faithful Jews are willing to travel through Samaria during Passover to avoid the more crowded way. Now, we know Jesus had no problems with the Samaritans. There's many stories about Jesus and talking with Samaritans and going through Samaria. Even there's a wonderful story in in, uh, John's gospel about having this really long conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. He probably learned that inclusive, welcoming attitude from his parents. So it's unlikely that Mary and Joseph would have traveled out of their way along the Jordan route to avoid Samaria. Remember, she's nine months pregnant here. So it's very reasonable to assume they would have taken the second route, the more direct way, the way of the patriarchs. Pastor Adam Hamilton did this trek, made this journey a few years back, and in his book he shares some of the highlights uh, for those of us that have never been there. By the way, Luke does not ever mention the presence of a donkey, though it seems unlikely that Joseph uh, would have made Mary walk. He probably would have hired some kind of animal. And The donkey's the biggest one in our mural, and every nativity seems to have a donkey, so we'll just go with that, right? Their journey began with a descent from the hills of Nazareth to the smooth plain of the Jezreel Valley. Now, this would have been the easiest part of their journey. It may have taken the first two days of their trek. The Jezreel Valley was a location of so many ancient battles that it had become synonymous with war and bloodshed. In fact, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, sees the final apocalyptic battle between good and evil taking place here at Armageddon. After several days, the journey to Bethlehem would have become more challenging, following the ancient road that curved back and forth as it ascended and descended the hills and the mountains of central Israel. Each day's journey would have ended at a spring or a well so that the people could have had water to drink and they could have watered their animals including, quite possibly, stopping at Jacob's well in the town of Sychar. This is where Jesus had the encounter with the Samaritan woman in John's gospel. Joseph and Mary would have continued on their journey from Sychar, traveling for the next three days over ever higher hills. This is the Judean wilderness. And for Mary, this would have been the most difficult and uncomfortable portion of their travels. On the afternoon of the ninth day, or maybe early morning of the 10th day, Mary and Joseph would finally have had Jerusalem in their sights. And from Jerusalem, it would only have been a few hours' walk to Bethlehem across several miles of arid desert and a few hills 
arriving at Bethlehem on day 10. Luke 2, verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, the traditional interpretation of the story goes something like this. Joseph and Mary couldn't find a room because being a guy, Joseph didn't think he needed to make reservations ahead of time. Just figure you show up and you'll find something, right? But think about this for a moment. If Joseph's family is from Bethlehem, why would he and Mary need to stay in an inn? Why would he have to stay in some Holiday Inn or Motel 6? Wouldn't they have stayed with family or relatives or, at worst, childhood friends? Pastor Adam Hamilton sheds new light on this subject in his book for me, and he says the Greek word that's translated as in, in most of Luke's gospel, most versions of Luke's gospel, is kataluma, kataluma. The word only appears one other time in the gospels, and that's when Jesus is sending his disciples ahead to find a room so they can gather for the last supper. And that would have been a guest room in someone's house. This is the floor plan of a typical first century house in Palestine. Parents slept in the sleeping quarters that you see in the top right. The main central room served as a kitchen, dining, and living room area. The kataluma was the third room, the guest room. This is where normally children would sleep unless guests were visiting, and then that's where you'd put your guests. Most homes would also have a stable or a small barn. Think of it like a first century garage And that was either behind the home or in cases of those homes built atop or around caves, it would have been beneath the home. Now, the guest room might hold enough bed mats for six people if they're sleeping side by side. The the main living room would hold a few more as well. But I wonder if Joseph's family was traveling from all over Israel, and if he had, what, three, four, five brothers, and they brought their families as well, is it any wonder that there was no room in the Cataluma. There's one other insight that I think supports Pastor Hamilton's research. Last Sunday, we talked briefly about a passage from Leviticus chapter 12. That's the part of the Bible that says when a woman gives birth to a son, she becomes unclean until her child is circumcised eight days after being born. Now, not only is the mother ritually unclean, but anything that she touches is also unclean. Anything she sits on or lies on becomes unclean as well. And if anyone touches her or anything that she's sat on or lying on or touched, they also will become ritually unclean. So it seems unlikely that if Mary was going to give birth in the guest room, she would have rendered everyone else that came into that room unclean as well. So maybe Joseph's parents set up a birthing room in the stable, in the barn, to give Mary and Joseph their privacy, and to keep everyone else able to go to temple. Now, let's pause for just a moment. I've been talking about giving birth like it's another thing uh, on your checklist uh, of things to accomplish before Christmas morning, right? But anyone who's ever been to the delivery room knows that's not the case. In Jesus' day, many women died during childbirth. And in order to prepare for the best, women back then would have to make sure that the room in which they delivered would be serene and peaceful. Many wanted their mothers with them, their closest friends, a competent midwife. That would have been the optimum scenario. When they knew the time was coming to give birth, that's what they would have wanted to have around them. When my wife Jody was pregnant with our son Ezra, our first child, uh, we put a lot of time into deciding which hospital she would give birth in. 
I was serving on the island of Oahu. We, there were two primary hospitals we had to choose from, Queens Medical Center and Kapilani Women and Children's Center. And so we got tours of each facility. We included the, including the birthing rooms, the recovering rooms, the mother and child suites that they called them. I even remember taking into account uh, the post-delivery celebration dinner that each hospital offered for the mom and the dad, right? And Queen's Hospital offered steak and lobster. So I'm like, I think we should go there. That's a, that looks like a great place to give birth. But things don't always go the way we plan them, do they? Whether it's Mary and Joseph or Jody and me. Ezra was about two weeks late. Jody's original due date was October 18th, 1994. On December 2nd, the day before, the doctor said, I will induce you if you haven't delivered... Jody decided to take matters into her own hands. And she and her mom went to the mall, not to go shopping, but power walking. Six hours they walked around the mall. And at the end of that time, Jody was starting to have her contractions. So then she came home, got ready, got our bags together, went to the hospital. One of the first things she asked for at Queens was an epidural. But as the evening wore on, we began noticing a disturbing trend. Every time that Jody had a contraction, the baby's heart rate dropped. They even screwed a tiny little uh, monitor onto the top of his head just so they can make sure that they're reading the vitals correctly. Now, the worst case scenario, what they were fearing was that uh, maybe the umbilical cord was wrapped around the child's head and that every time the contractions came, it actually might be strangling. So they gave Jody medicine to stop the contractions, which then would allow the baby's heart to rest. And when the contractions stopped and the heart rate stayed strong, they realized, okay, great. So it wasn't connected to the contractions. But they didn't know where, or, or, or to the umbilical cord being wrapped around his neck. But they didn't know exactly what the thing was, so they wanted to make sure that they got the child out quickly. Uh, Instead of ordering a C-section, which is what many doctors would have done at that time, uh, Jody's OBGYN uh, gave her medicine to start her contractions again. And it was a very slow process. So slow that they had to do two more top-offs on her uh, epidural medicine just to make sure that she wasn't in pain because it was such a long and drawn-out process. And then the doctor said, um, okay, you need to start pushing when the contractions reach a certain point. Well, she had so much pain medicine in her, she couldn't feel the contractions at all. A nurse had to look at the monitor and say, okay, you're having a contraction now. Push. Right? She only pushed three times. The doctor used this suction cup, like a toilet plunger thing to to get the baby out quick. (laughs) Ezra came out with this really nice purple hat on his head. Not the toilet plunger, that's just what his head looked like for the first few minutes. But we were so grateful for the medical expertise and for the sophistication at the hospital that we had chosen for him to be born. Mary had none of that. No fancy birthing room, no OBGYN, no midwife, no heart rate monitors, definitely no epidural with top-offs. And yet Jesus was born, nonetheless. Praise God. I'm sure it was a loud, sweaty, bloody, and messy night uh, that very first Christmas. Most births are, aren't they? Mary was far from home. She was out of her comfort zone. And remember, she's probably 13 or 14 years. Nevertheless, she went through it and came out like a trooper, giving birth to a boy they'd soon name Jesus because, as the angel told them, 
He will save the world from their sins. Do you know why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? It's not because we have any proof that that's when Jesus was actually born. Most biblical scholars have no idea what part of the year he was actually born in. But we celebrate December 25th because the church over the centuries has come to believe that the birth of the Savior models what's happening in nature. Now, we've just passed on Tuesday night the winter solstice. It marks the longest night of the year. And ever since the summer solstice, night has been growing longer and day has been growing shorter. Right up to this past Tuesday. And let me tell you, it gets dark a whole lot earlier in California than it does in Hawaii. I mean, for us, winter solstice, it's like 6.48 or something that it starts getting dark. Here, it's like, what, 2.30, it's already dark. (laughs) It's amazing. But from yesterday onward, things begin to shift. Darkness starts to recede. Daylight is spreading. And the early Christians believe that this is what Jesus was doing in his birth, that light was overcoming the darkness. In fact, the Gospel of John begins with this very sentiment. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So Jesus is the one who pierces the darkness that is all around you. And some of you have come with a lot of darkness. I mean, not that there's bad things that you're doing, but just a lot of of worry and concern and fear that you're holding on to for your own families or for people you love. Problems, challenges, situations that are overwhelming. This is not the journey that you would have chosen had you been given that opportunity. But like Mary, it's a journey that you nevertheless find yourself on. The question tonight is, friends, can you trust the light that's coming into the world? Can you give your heart to this one who came to bring hope and salvation? Now, maybe you've come to church for a long time, but one thing or another has happened and you realize, you know, you need to rededicate your relationship with God. Tonight can be that time. Or maybe you've only come to church from time to time and you've never really made that commitment. Maybe tonight is that opportunity. Amen. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and, but you're going through something that's especially difficult right now. And you want to make sure that God is the one who is leading you through that. What a wonderful time to rededicate your life to God tonight. Now, in a few minutes, uh, we'll pass out candles, or you have candles, and we'll start lighting the candles and singing Silent Night. It's more than just the last thing to do before we get to go home and do our final preparations for Christmas. This can be an opportunity to draw closer to the one who created us, who redeemed us, who saved us, who spent our whole lives seeking to draw us closer. So as you look at the flame in your candle and as you ponder the light of the world who has come to us at Christmas, I invite you to affirm in your heart, yes, Lord, I give my life to you once again. If God is tugging your heart, don't let this opportunity pass. I'm not going to ask a show of hands and to see who's... No, this is between you and God. Make this moment tonight with God as you're singing. Make it be one of the greatest gifts that you open this Christmas. What a gift we've been given. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.